Let's start, as we typically do, with our scene of activity. A little bit of a running start, in case you're new, giving you some context as to where we are in the flow of Mark's gospel. Mark chapter 11, verses 20 through 26, started Tuesday. Tuesday in the middle of Jesus' week of passion. Sunday obviously started the week where Jesus enters Jerusalem presenting himself as the king, the ultimate Passover sacrifice. Tuesday, Jesus makes the two-mile walk from Bethany to Jerusalem. And as he's doing this, he utilizes the opportunity to instruct, to teach, to elaborate on a miracle that he had performed the day before, a miracle that the disciples are just now kind of observing, this miracle of Jesus cursing the fig tree. But then chapter 11, verses 27 through chapter 12, verse 27, Jesus arrives there after this two-mile journey to the temple, and he's ambushed by the religious leaders, as we looked at the last couple of weeks, who challenge him, inspect him, based upon his authority, taxes, the resurrection, heaven, several of these topics. As we looked at last Sunday, Mark 12, verses 28 through 34, following these three waves of inspection, Jesus transitions when he's approached by an honest seeker, a scribe. And Jesus interacts with him, he deals with him, he answers a question, which is the greatest of the commandments? And my, does Jesus have quite a bit to say. Now through all of the interactions, we've seen that Jesus has not only effectively handled questions that were meant to discredit his ministry, but his answers, they're, they're in the temple, with this huge crowd of onlookers, have actually yielded the opposite effect. They came asking these questions, trying to catch Jesus, we're told, by his words. His answers are so brilliant, so loving, so on point, that not only do his answers not discredit his ministry, but the people are more jazzed up and excited and enthused now than they even were when Jesus initially arrived into Jerusalem. So they've had this unintended consequence. Now that the questions have ceased, Jesus decides to pose a question of his own. Verse 35 of Mark chapter 12, then, after all of this, Jesus said to them, as he's teaching in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David. Now on Sunday, Jesus had entered Jerusalem to the chance of the people proclaiming him to be the promised Messiah. They were convinced that Jesus was the Christ. The questions the religious leaders posed were aimed at toning down this excitement. As we mentioned last Sunday, the Messiahship of Jesus was something that the religious leaders had a vested interest in discrediting. They weren't rejecting Jesus based upon intelligence or a lack of evidence or that Jesus had in some way discredited his own integrity. They were rejecting Jesus for all the wrong reasons. And what we see here is to counteract their assertions that Jesus wasn't the Messiah. Jesus addresses the issue head on. They ask their questions to discredit his Messiahship, to tone down the excitement of the people, Following all this, Jesus counterpunches with a question dealing with his messiahship. 
And this is important for one main reason. Jesus wants to ensure that no one, not the people that were present, not the scribes or the religious leaders that had come, Jesus wanted to make sure that there was no one that could claim ignorance when they would inevitably reject his Messiahship and crucify him later that week. So Jesus addresses this issue in his question. How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David was designed to address a misconception that the people had concerning the Messiah? You see, the people believed, and they believed it because the religious leaders taught it, that the Messiah would descend from King David, would be a descendant of King David, understood by this phrase, the son of David, the descendant of David. And though they saw that Jesus would descend from David, would be of the tribe of Judah, they rejected this notion that Jesus had been asserting that the Messiah would be more than just a descendant of David, but that the Messiah would also be God, that the Messiah would pose a divine nature, that people were confused about this. So Jesus continues, for David himself said by the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand to unmake your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David himself calls him the Messiah Lord. So how then is the Messiah his son? And we're told that the common people heard him gladly. Now to make his point that the Messiah would not only be a descendant of David, but would also be divine, would be God, Jesus takes them back to the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, he quotes from Psalms 110 verse 1, an accepted messianic psalm. Now, what's a messianic psalm? A messianic psalm was a psalm, one of these songs, or part of a psalm or one of these songs that spoke of or referred to this coming Messiah. So much as David is singing these songs, thinking about the Lord, his, his thoughts, his heart would, would get prophetic. He would go into the future in regards to his anticipation of this coming king. And Jesus' day, these messianic psalms, which are many of them, were referred to as the royal or the kingly psalms. The essence of Jesus' question is as follows. If King David and this psalm refer to the Messiah as his Lord, then shouldn't we assume that David saw that the Messiah would be more than simply a descendant? Now, let me explain. In Jewish culture, it was all based upon a hierarchical family system. Fathers and sons and grandsons, the grandfather being the patriarch, everyone else submitting to the patriarch until you became your own patriarch. There was this hierarchical system of importance based upon age. You see, a son was never in this culture perceived to be above or more important than his father and a father would never submit to the authority of a son. This was the culture. Now, since the Old Testament scriptures clearly stated that the Messiah would descend from David, but David, in this passage, referred to the Messiah, this descendant, as being a Lord, Jesus' question is, how do you reconcile this obvious cultural abnormality? If David's the greatest king that, that, that was or ever will be, as they saw it, then why would David refer to a son 
as being his Lord. This went against everything the people viewed. Either David was a lesser king than the Messiah, which they would never want to admit, or the nature of the Messiah had to be so different, so abnormal, that David even recognized the obvious implications that this descendant was his Lord. Why? Because his descendant would be God. The only logical conclusion, and you'll note that there's no rebuttal here. Jesus asks a question. The common people rejoice. Jesus has caught them using their own theology. The religious leaders don't respond, and why is this? The only logical conclusion you can reach through an honest examination of the Old Testament is that the Messiah would be a descendant of David, but would also possess a divine nature, making him a greater king than David, which is why David refers to him using this phrase, Lord. Now, before we move forward, in Jesus' statement setting up Psalms 110, this line, for David himself said, by the Holy Spirit, Jesus is referencing David's words as coming from the Holy Spirit, which is why we should take note of the importance of what David's saying, because who's really saying it? God, the Holy Spirit. In doing this, Jesus is affirming the inspiration of Scripture by the Holy Spirit. Now, let me give you a fancy phrase. The authority of the Bible is described by scholars, by theologians, as the verbal plenary inspiration of God. It's a mouthful, admittedly. But let me give you a definition and kind of work through this systematically because I find that this is very important to our culture and our Christian culture. Do you realize that the percentages of people that actually believe that all scripture is inspired without error, authoritative, within the Christian community is very, very small. And thus it deserves and demands our attention. This word verbal, it, it means that scripture contains the exact words, forms of words, and wording that God desires. There are 40 authors to scripture, 66 books, 40 authors written somewhere between 1500 BC and 100 AD. And when the Holy Spirit worked through these various authors, he moved in such a way as to bring about exactly what he wanted to communicate. That it is exactly as God intended it to be. The words, the forms of the words, and the wordings themselves were inspired by God. Now, 2 Timothy 3.16, it's a scriptural reference that validates this. We're told that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and all righteousness. Now, this word plenary literally means that all scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, from the, the law to the books of Jewish history, to the books of poetry, to the major and minor prophets, the Old Testament, as well as the New Testament, the gospels, the Pauline epistles, the other letters, the other epistles not written by Paul, concluding with the book of Revelation, all scripture, all 66 books are equally authoritative, that all of them are God's word, which means that the genealogies and chronicles 
carry with them as much weight as the deep theology of Romans. That all scripture is God-inspired, making it all authoritative. Luke 16, verse 17, Jesus says that it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. In Romans 15, verse four, the apostle Paul says that for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Understand, and there's a misconception that often floats around concerning the canonization of scripture, the canonization of the Bible. A lot of people, in their mind, they see that a bunch of old guys with white beards somewhere early in the church got together and decided to pick and choose what books they were going to include in the Bible and which books they were going to exclude from the Bible. And thus, the Old Testament scribes did the same thing with all of these books that circulated, and we look at it and we say, well, aren't there other books? Shouldn't they have been included? Well, what about the Apocrypha, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Understand that canonization is not that. Canonization is when the church, they compiled books that were already viewed and accepted and recognized as the authoritative inspired word of God. They didn't pick books to compile them into the Bible. They recognized which books were inspired, were inspired by the Holy Spirit. And in regards to the Old Testament canon, you should note that Jesus quoted or referenced every single book, all 40 in the Old Testament. He didn't reference the Apocrypha, or any of the extra Old Testament biblical references that are included by the Roman Catholic Church. Which leads us to our third word, inspiration. The verbal plenary inspiration of scripture. This word inspiration, it it gives the idea that every word of scripture was supernaturally communicated by God through the biblical authors and their personalities to write the exact things that God wanted to express. This word inspired, I think it kind of paints the wrong idea. Because when we think of the word inspired, we think of something where I saw this incredible sunrise and I was inspired by that to then paint or write a song. That I saw something and it then inspired me to do something. And sometimes people think, well, these authors encountered God and that produced an inspiration within them to then write the things of God. But that's not what the word means. This word inspiration, the word that Jesus used by saying that David said, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and then what Paul says to Timothy, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's the Greek word theonostos, which means literally God breathed. Now, this doesn't mean that the authors, that the apostle Paul, when writing the book of Galatians, lit some incense, got his cup of coffee, and then entered into some weird trance where his eyes glazed over and his hand just started moving on the scroll, writing exactly what God wanted to say. That's not what happened. That's not what the word indicates. It, It also doesn't mean that God appeared to John for the gospel and said, hey, I want you to write to dictate down the exact words that I'm going to tell you. Now, 
Ironically, Jesus did that with John for the book of Revelation. But he didn't appear to Paul, didn't appear to James, and that these aren't a dictation. And if they were, then, well, they should have just the personality of God, but we see the personality of the authors come through. You see what the word means? It means God breathed, that God inspired the words that they wrote. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21 says, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God, who did what? As God spoke, they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit breathing into them, inspiring the words, working through them, through their personality, through their humor, through their particular uh, you know, personality quirks writing scripture. Now here's the, here's the deal. The biggest hang up for people is not the inspiration of the Bible. You see, many people accept the inspiration of the originals. Okay, I believe that the, the word of God, the Bible, scripture was inspired by God, but here's my hang up. How can I trust then that the copies haven't been tampered with over time. I mean, really, I believe this scripture was inspired, but after 2,000 years of, of, of man's involvement, how can I trust that this, what I have in my hand, is inspired? It hasn't been messed with or tampered with or, or, or morphed to communicate something God never wanted it to communicate, but men with selfish motivation wanted to communicate. How can I trust, in essence, that my Bible is the inspired word of God, because many people don't. Now to answer this question, let me first explain how translation, how these things work, why you can trust that your Bible is God's word. As with all ancient manuscripts, with all of them, anything ancient, in order to ensure the authenticity of our copy or our text, you have to compare our copy, the consistency of our copy, with the earliest copies that we've discovered. And so if there is a similarity uh, or a consistency between our text and an early copy that we've discovered, well, that ups the ante as far as how we can trust it. Now, the key would be to have an original, right? I mean, if you had an original, the actual Gospel of Mark signed by Mark, it was the actual scroll that Mark wrote, then we could take that, compare it to what we have in Mark, and feel really good about things. But what happens if you don't have the original? And truthfully, with works of antiquity, no one has originals. So how do you then work it? Understand that if you don't have the original, then if you can have a large amount and a diverse amount of the earliest manuscripts or parts of manuscripts that you can find, then you will discover it's just as reliable as having an original. The more we compare our text with early texts, the more evidence we have to either validate or discredit the authenticity of our Bible. Let me give you a comparison here from the New Testament to other works of antiquity. Homer, Homer's Iliad. We have today 643 Greek copies. We don't have an original. We have copies or fragments of copies that date back 500 years from when Homer actually wrote the Iliad. In regards to Aristotle, we have 49 Greek copies dating back 1,000 years. It's the earliest copies we have. 
dating a thousand years from the original. In regards to Caesar, the writings of Caesar, we have 10 Greek copies dating back a thousand years from the original. Plato, seven Greek copies dating back 1,200 years from the original. Now, do you ever hear a lot of people trying to discredit whether or not the works of Plato are as Plato had written them? Are there college classes trying to really dissect whether or not Homer's Iliad is really as written as Homer intended the Iliad to be written? No. In comparison, the New Testament, there are 5,600 Greek copies dating back less than 100 years from the original. John Ryland's fragment of John's gospel, it dates 29 years from the original. Chester Beatty's papyrus of Romans, Hebrews, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Ephesians, Galatians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st Thessalonians, it dates 150 years from the original. Rumors circulate that right now they have discovered in Egypt a copy of Mark's gospel that dates, a full copy of Mark's gospel that dates to 80 AD, making it the earliest copy of anything that we possess. We should also note that in addition to 5,600 Greek copies, we have 19,000 early copies of the New Testament and other languages, such as Latin and Coptic and Aramaic language, bringing the total New Testament manuscripts to 24,000. The next is Sothenes, which is like 1,000 copies. It's unbelievable. By comparing our Bible with these early fragments, we can verify that only one one-thousandth of your Bible possesses any kind of textual variations from the early copies. Only one one-thousandth, which means that you can trust that 99.5% of your New Testament and 98.5% of your Old Testament is textually pure. I should also mention that of these small percentages, there are zero substantive errors or contextual abnormalities. Most of the time, it's a smudge that can't be interpreted. You will not find any other work of antiquity that even comes close to the amount of evidence that validates that what you have in your hand is exactly as God inspired the authors to write it. Any attempt to do so is to excuse away the proof. Then Jesus, he said to them in his teachings, beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes and they love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogue, the best place at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Now, what does Jesus mean by beware of the scribes? This word beware, it doesn't mean that Jesus is telling the Jews that they should be fearful of the scribes or even afraid. The Greek verb, it literally means to discern with your eye. You see, Jesus is telling them after encountering them, right? And the viewing of the entire multitude, he says, those jokers that came, you should discern, you should examine them, you should look, you should evaluate who they are. 
And why would Jesus encourage them to evaluate who they were? The scribes were their teachers. They were the spiritual leaders. And so Jesus is saying, because they teach you and because they lead you, you should evaluate them. You should discern. You see, understand that you have a right. I'll go even a step further. You have a responsibility to evaluate those who you allow to teach you God's word. That includes myself. You have a responsibility to look at me and to evaluate whether or not you will allow me to have an influence in your life by teaching you God's word. As a matter of fact, Jesus encourages you to do this. Paul calls the, the folks that would do this the Bereans, that the Bereans were known by challenging, by examining, by evaluating, looking, discerning who they allowed to teach them. Jesus is literally saying, he's encouraging you to evaluate your teachers and to see if any of these characteristics that he, that he lays out can be associated with your teacher. And if they can, you should beware, you should be careful. And so here's the deal. If you see any of these following characteristics evident in who you allow to teach you God's word, myself included, then you should have a problem with it. First, Jesus says that they go around in long robes. The scribes, they were men of leisure, men who like to watch while others work. I hope that you look to your pastor and you see yourself in the foxhole with them that it's evident that your pastor or who you allow to have spiritual influence in your life is not sitting up perched from some higher hill, but is down in the mud with you. That is leading by example, that is charging forward, that you're in the battle with, not being sent into the battle for. They go around in long robes. Secondly, we're told that they love greeting in the mar marketplaces. You see, the scribes love to have the people stroke their spiritual ego. They like the praises of men. I'll be honest with you, that's my biggest struggle at Calvary 316. Because if anyone comes up and says, I really enjoyed the Bible study this morning. Obviously, there's the human aspect of me that enjoys the, recogn the recognition that I was diligent with my study that I took the time to craft and develop things for your benefit and for your development and for your growth. But I also understand that I'm a moron and that God doesn't need me at all. He can speak through a donkey. I'm just a vessel. And so really when it's all said and done, when you're thanking me, uh, yes, I can take it as encouragement, but I can't be doing it for that. I'm doing it solely because God called me to. These men, they did it because they loved the pat on the back. They loved the inflation of their ego, the greeting in the marketplace. Thirdly, they loved the best seats in the synagogue, the best place at the feast. You see the scribes, Jesus says, be weary, warn, discern, because if you observe, if you note, they love the perks that come with their status and their privilege. I'll say that that I think is one of the biggest critiques of the American pastor that exists. Don't you see it? 
and the way that they live. My father pastors Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain. He's been doing so for 33 years. He always drives a beater. It's the ugliest, dumpiest car you could possibly... I mean, it was this Toyota Corolla that like most of the time had an anthill in it. I mean, it was just like, are you kidding me? Go buy a new car. But you know, he always told me, he said, you know, Zach, I don't want anyone to ever view me and to say that he's doing it for that. You know, to see pastors who have their spot in the parking lot, typically with an empty space to the right and the left because they don't want their BMW or their Mercedes getting dinged. Now, I'm not saying that, that a pastor shouldn't be paid, and I'm not saying that a pastor shouldn't enjoy certain perks that come with the ministry, but let's be honest what Jesus is exhorting us to discern. What's the heart behind it? What's the motivation behind it? Are they there to serve the people or to get? We're also told that they devour widows' houses. This is kind of a strange phrase, admittedly. And you can get kind of some varying opinions as to what Jesus is saying here. I think, and I think that there's evidence to support the idea that the scribes, they wanted payment from the people. They wanted to be paid, but they didn't want to be paid in a natural fruition of the ministry. They actually wanted to be paid at the expense of the people that they were ministering to, not from the natural giving of the people that they were ministering to. David Guzik, he says this about this passage. He says, in that day, a Jewish teacher could not be paid for teaching, but he could receive gifts. The Jews of Jesus's day taught that the teachers were to be respected almost as much as people respected God. They said that they deserved more honor and more respect than any other people in life. And they taught that the greatest act someone could do was to give their money to a teacher. And thus when poor widows, would, 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 their husband would pass, they would sell the estate and, and, and they would devour the benefits, the blessings. Of course, David Guzik says that it was the teachers themselves who taught this. This was not scripture. Damian Kyle, another, another Bible teacher I, I loved listening to, he says that the one thing worse than a thief is a religious thief. And the only thing worse than a religious thief is one who preys on the weakest among us. And these scribes were guilty of this. And finally, they, for a pretense, make long prayers. Their relationship with God, and this was the root of the problem, when it was all said and done, it was more show than substance. And should that ever be said concerning me, I should no longer be doing what I'm doing. Why? Because Jesus warns that these men who teach and who have spiritual influence, these will receive greater condemnation. James chapter 3, verse 1, James says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers. Why? Knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. I think it's said pretty, pretty clearly. Now Jesus, he sat opposite the treasury. Still Tuesday, taking a break. And he saw how the people put money into the treasury. And many who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which makes a quadrant. 
So Jesus called his disciples to himself and he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all who had given to the treasury. For they all put in out of their abundance, but she put in out of her poverty all that she had her whole livelihood. Now, after a day full of answering questions and teaching the people, Jesus sat down and he sat down opposite the treasury and he's watching how people put in their money. Now, entering the temple from the east, you would enter what was called the gate called beautiful, the beautiful gate. And from there, you would enter the temple itself, three courtrooms, courtyards. The first would be the court of the women. Then there would be the court of Israel, which the women were not allowed to enter, but the men. And then from there, the men couldn't allow, but only the priests could enter the third court, the court of the priests. From there, you would enter the holy place. And then from there, the holy of holies. Now between the women's court and the court of Israel existed 13 large trumpet-shaped chests, offering boxes, where people would come and give their offerings to the Lord. Each chest had a specific designation for giving. Trumpets one and two were for the half-shekel temple tax. Trumpet three was the money for turtle doves. So if you could put in money for for the, the purchasing of the turtle doves, you could designate that offering. Trumpet four was for young pigeons. Five was the wood for the sacrifices. Trumpet six was for the incense for the altar. Trumpet seven was for the golden vessels that would be used in the work. Trumpet eight was kind of a general offering box. So you're like, I might be enough turtle doves or pigeons not really caring about the wood or the incense. Just You just take the gift, use it for whatever needs to be used. Trumpet eight was for the general offering. And then trumpet nine through 13 was like for all kinds of miscellaneous offerings that the law asked. When one was fulfilling the the law of the Nazarite, there was a special offering they had to give. It would go in nine through 13. If you were uh, declared cleansed as a leper, you would go in, in these miscellaneous offering boxes, you would give your tithe. Jesus sat opposite. So he's in the women's courtyard, probably right inside the beautiful gate. And he's watching how the people gave. Note that Jesus wasn't interested in how much they gave, but instead how they gave, their countenance, their attitude. And what did Jesus see? Well, as Jesus is watching, for how long? We don't know. 30 minutes, an hour, a couple hours. Maybe he's eating a, a, a hoagie. I have no idea. But as he's sitting there, Mark says that he observed many, Many who were rich, putting in much. However, it was when one poor widow, and maybe he watches her come in, and and Jesus watches her go and to pray before God before she goes over to offer this offering. And Jesus is observing the whole thing. He's sitting there watching that she comes up and she threw in two mites. And it was at this point that Jesus stops and he hollers over for the disciples to come because he's got to point out what he just watched. What he had witnessed was so significant that he wanted to make sure to point it out to his disciples. And if you consider yourself a disciple, which I hope you do, then Jesus is also pointing out what he observed to you. He said to them, This poor widow has put in more than all who have given to the treasury. 
for they put in out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. Now this phrase, poor widow, it's the only description we're given of the woman, but it indicates two things. First, she's poor. The word poor means that she's completely impoverished. She has nothing. You can see it from a distance. She's poor. And she's a widow, which means that she's still wearing, in order for Jesus to make the observation, she's still wearing the clothes of mourning. So she's poor and she's a widow. And Jesus tells the disciples that this poor widow, she gave two mites, which makes a quadrant. Now, a mite is the Greek word lepton which was a small brass coin, the equivalent of today probably being one-fifth a cent. A quadrant, or as the old King James calls it, a farthing, was the equivalent of about three-eighths a cent. So she put in two mites, equaling a quadrant. And then Jesus qualifies all of this by pointing out that though she had given only two mites, she had just put in all she had. This is it. This is all she had, her whole livelihood. But then Jesus says something else, that this small gift was greater, not just of what the rich people were giving, but Jesus, look at it again. He says, it was greater than what all those who had given that day had placed into the treasury. It wasn't that Jesus was comparing these two mites to what the old, older rich men were giving, but that her two mites was greater than what had been given the entire day by which he was sitting there observing. Now, we're going to make a few observations about giving from this passage, but, but I want to qualify this. This is not a money grab by your pastor. This is not some underhanded tricky attempt to bulk up ties during a traditionally slow month in the middle of the summer. When I close the service every week by saying that we have no desire to pressure you into tithing and would prefer to leave this as a matter between you and God, I pray you know we sincerely, I sincerely mean it. However, my job here, my call, is to teach God's word expositionally verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through a book of the Bible. I don't feel called to teach topically nor thematically, which means that I allow God to communicate to you whatever he wants, whenever he wants to. I don't cherry pick passages. So as your pastor, if I don't take a moment to talk about giving in context to you, then what does that mean? That means that I'm doing you a disservice as your pastor, and more important to me, I'm not being a faithful servant because I've been called by God to teach his word faithfully, and this just so happens to be where we are. Now, if you've been around Calvary 316, we don't talk about giving a lot. We're here, so we have to address it. My first observation, first thing that you can't help but note is that Jesus watches when we give to him out of our resources. He is sitting there watching. And he's watching us. Not to say that his presence exists next to the offering box, but he's always watching you. He's always taking note. According to the book of Job, he, he brags about you. 
He's interested in what you're doing. And he's interested in what you're giving. The whole scene begins with Jesus sitting across the courtyard, watching how people give to him. And it would appear from the text that Jesus took note of two things as he's watching. Two things that he watches and takes note of you. First, he's watching people's countenance. He's watching how you give. Is it a joy to give? Or are you walking up to the offering box begrudgingly? Is there a scowl on your face? Are you doing it out of obligation? Jesus observes. He takes note. And we should also point out that he observes the amount. Jesus watched the countenance, how people gave, but he also took note how much. Why? He noted that there were rich people giving a lot. He observed it. And there was a poor widow that didn't give much, but it was a lot. Jesus took note of the countenance and the amount. And I believe there are two easy implications for this point. The act of giving is something Jesus takes seriously. And we always say this when we close our service, though we might not make a priority or emphasize it, though we might not make a big deal about money because we're gonna trust God. He'll provide for our needs. It doesn't mean that it's not a big deal to God. Jesus is sitting there watching it, which means that it's important. But also, whether we're rich or whether we're poor, we should be giving. And you see, I, I hear people say, but, but I'm poor. I don't make a lot. So God's cool with it. Really? Find me a scriptural basis for that. Because this poor widow had nothing, gave her all. The poor widow gave and the rich gave. The second point I wanna make, not only does Jesus watch when we give to him of our resources, but Jesus evaluates our gift based more on the heart behind the gift versus the substance of the gift. I hope you realize God does not need your money at all. Like, that's not the whole purpose of giving. It's not though that God has this great balance in heaven and it's starting to dip a little low and God's thinking, oh my goodness, you should give because I'm running out of resources. Like when you're God, you can just speak things into existence that didn't exist, that didn't exist beforehand. You, can, you don't need your money. Like God does not need your money. That's not the whole point of giving. As a matter of fact, it has nothing to do with giving. You see, if it did, Jesus' reaction would have been the opposite of what it was. But in taking the amount of the offering into consideration, what would Jesus have done? He wouldn't have praised the widow. He would have praised the rich man. But he didn't, he praised the widow. Now going back to Mark's observation, we note that Jesus was more interested in how the people were giving versus what they were giving. And why is this? Because when you strip away your offering, the point, the purpose behind it all, giving is a matter of love. Truth be told, as a matter of the heart, Giving and tithing, it really reveals a person's true love for God. The widow and the rich man. You know, a key component of love. And you know this in your own marriage, your own relationships, right? A key component. Matter of fact, you would say that love can't exist 
if trust doesn't exist, right? If there's no trust, it's real hard to love, especially in an agape sense, as Jesus has just finished talking about. Loving God, a decision of the mind. You see, if we love God, then we trust God. It's a component, it's a manifestation, it's an outpouring. You see, giving forces me to address this core question. Well, I trust that God can do more with less of my income than I can do with more of it. Well, I trust God. You see, ultimately, giving is a matter of recognized stewardship. God, you've given all of it to me. All of it's yours. Every bit, every dime, every nickel. You've given it to me. And so I'm gonna give back. I think there's precedent for 10%, but you can figure that out on your own. I'm gonna give it back to you because I love you. And I wanna demonstrate to you from my love that I'll trust you. I'll trust that you can do more with 90% than I can do with 100 I'll trust that you can do more with 70% than I can do with 100. Will you trust him? Giving is a matter of trust, which is a matter of love. And because this poor widow was willing to trust God with everything, it revealed an incredible faith in God's ability to provide for her needs. Her husband had died. She was alone her future bleak, but she gives the Lord her all. And in doing so, what does she say? God, I love you and I'll trust that you'll provide. But you know another component of love, in addition to trust, it's also sacrifice. If there's no sacrifice happening in your marriage, you sacrificing for her and her sacrificing for you, parents sacrificing for kids, if there's no sacrifice, can you really say that there's love? I mean, selfishness is not a characteristic of love. Sacrifice is. And since love is always connected to sacrifice, here's the key. You can observe the depth of a person's love for God by the depth of a person's sacrifice for God. In addition to other things, some of you love to go hunting. And how do we know that? because you make incredible sacrifices to go hunting. You sacrifice money and weekends and time. You sit in the cold. I don't love hunting. How do you know that? I don't go. Why? Because it costs money and time and energy and effort and resources. You see, you can observe what you love by what you make sacrifices for. It's the same with God. It's the same with giving. You see, in Jesus's eyes, the size of my offering, it isn't based upon the amount of my offering, but it's instead connected to the sacrifice that comes with my offering. What does it cost me? What do I have to sacrifice? The proportion of the gift as it relates to my overall wealth. Why did Jesus say that the rich men he says, they gave out of their abundance, right? But this poor woman, she gave a little, but it was out of what? It was out of her all. The third thing is that Jesus, in addition to watching, right? In, in, addition, in addition to evaluating about, about the heart, knowing that love is about trust and sacrifice, I think we can also say this, and this is the final point I wanna make. That Jesus, he delights when we give our all. Like Jesus loves it. 
to the point that he brags about it, that he brings the disciples over to point it out. And a temple scene that was full of things that we would assume might have caught Jesus' attention, prayers, sacrifices. The one thing he was so jazzed up about that he had to brag was the offering of this poor widow. This poor widow's offering to God delighted Jesus Yes, because it demonstrated her obedience, that the scriptures were clear we were to give to God. And yes, it's true that it demonstrated her trust that God would provide for her needs. But above all else, and you should note this, that her giving, her offering, what did it reveal? Yes, a love for God, but a worship of God. You see, in scripture, you will find that giving is always presented as an act of worship. And by definition, worship is always presented as what? A response to God's giving. So how does it work? God gives to us what we need. And he's faithful and he says, trust me and love me. I'll take care of you. It's an adventure. And in response to him giving and providing, I give back in worship. You know, God's all into giving. He'll never ask us to do something he himself was not willing to do first. And we're told, aren't we? For God so loved the world that he did what? He gave. And if you so love God, What should you do? You should give. Now, admittedly, I'm not going to give you a percentage. We're not even going to take it like a greater evaluation of the offering this morning. Who really loves God? Who doesn't? We're going to leave that between you and Jesus. Between you and him. But as your pastor, we note some important things here. Some challenging things. I got to tell you, That giving, incorporating that as a part of our lives, my wife and I, it has created such an excitement. It's a journey filled with wonder. Every week, when we sit down after the paycheck and we give to God right off the, the first fruits, right from the beginning, and then we're looking at the finances and we're trying to figure out how what's left will fit the bills. And it's an adventure. Why? Because the Lord's never let us down. The other day, we've had some medical bills that have come up because of the things that Jessica had been going through and insurance covered most of it. But, you know, just bills and bills and bills. And I was doing my finances on Monday last week. And I got done. I said, Lord, you're faithful. Thank you for providing. But Lord, you know, we've been given. We've been faithful. We could really use a pick-me-up. I don't know where it'll come from. I'm on a fixed income. It's salary. But whatever you want to do, I come out to the church to record the B-sides. I get in my truck, check my phone. Jess has called me. Because a gigantic... Red oak has fallen, has crushed my fence, and has found itself laying on part of my deck. 
And I thought to myself, that's what I thought to myself, that stinks. So I immediately called Allstate, our insurance, said, what's the deal? It's our deductible. There's another $500, great. They're like, we'll take care of the tree. We'll send out an adjuster. We'll write you a check. We'll do. When it was all said and done, after we paid to have the tree removed, after I went out to have the fence fixed, after I cleaned up the yard, I look at my ledger, and the Lord blessed us with about $1,600. And I thought, I had just been praying, Lord, where are you going to provide? And he kicked down a, pine, a big oak tree and had it destroy part of my yard. And he said, you want me to provide? There you go. And I'll tell you, I could stand up here for the next hour and give you story after story after story after story. I would go so far as to say that if you've made it a priority to give, you also could stand up here and say story after story after story of the adventure. We were like, I have no idea. My dad was telling me, we're like, they get a, a tax bill for $1,600. And they're like, I don't know where the money's gonna come from. And my dad gets hammered on 285 by a semi-truck that sends him spiraling across the interstate and he's fine. And the car runs and they get a check from the insurance for $1,600. What kind of life with God you want? If you want an adventure where you see God's supernatural hand at work in your life in a very real and awesome and powerful way, as a friend, I exhort you to give. So Father, we thank you for your word.